Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Reasons to Believe, with a message that Dr. Newfeld entitled, Living Water. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, as we join Dr. John now. I'm reading John 4, verses 1 to 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, we have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Wow, that's one of the wonderful stories of the Bible. You know, I can't help but read this and compare it to the previous chapter, John chapter 3. You know, both chapters deal with intimate glimpses of Jesus, Jesus sharing the good news one-on-one, the news that changes a human life. But the two people involved, Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then this woman, are so very different. He was educated, she was undoubtedly uneducated, as women did not have access to that kind of an education. He was powerful and respected in his community. She was considered a moral failure, and so she did her business of drawing water all alone. He was theologically trained. She belonged to a a people group that was a sect and that was outside the stream of God's revelation. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. He was a man, she was a woman. The contrast is stunning, and yet, here we find Jesus taking considerable amount of time with each one. And in the end, if we think about it, they had so much in common. You see, both of them needed eternal life. Neither of them had been born again. Neither of them had this living water which, which would satisfy their souls. Both stood outside of God's grace, and both of them received a personal visit from the Son of God, who came to them wrapped in the clothing of humanity. There are so many lessons to be learned from John chapter 4. But today, I want us to see a portrait of Jesus, the one who reaches out to us in our alienation from God. Jesus, the master of reaching the souls of men and women. He identified the crying need of each human being and offered them a gift, a gift of eternal life, a, a quality of life so rich and so full of God that this life would not be extinguished by death itself. You know, this is a long passage of Scripture, but I think we can divide it into a number of sections. 
you know, verses 1 to 26 of this chapter describe the encounter, the, in, the encounter of, of Jesus and this woman. And then later in verses 27 to 38, it describes the explanation of that encounter. And then later in verses 39 to 42, it helps us see the ultimate effects of that encounter. Now, because it's such a long and detailed account, I'm going to take the rest of the week just to make sure that we're going through this passage as thoroughly as we should. So let's begin at the beginning. Jesus and his disciples were making a journey from Judea in the south of Israel, and they were journeying north towards Galilee, where he would spend a great deal of time. And the reasons for his journey are many. You know, I have no doubt that his growing ministry and his popularity was beginning to be noticed by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And on top of that, some of John the Baptist's disciples were feeling threatened by the dramatic impact he was having on them. And so Jesus was not going to allow the two ministries, that is, his and that of John the Baptist, to become polarized, even though John's attitude toward Jesus was always positive. But the Pharisees were always looking to make mischief, and the growing sense that John the Baptist's disciples felt threatened, well, that gave Jesus all the motivation in the world not to harm John's ministry. He was going to move from Judea to Galilee. Now, the text says that he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was the territory that stood between Judea and Galilee. You know, a little history is in order here. If you know something of the history of Israel, you're going to know that after the reign of King Solomon, Israel split in two, the northern and the southern kingdom. In about 721 BC, the Assyrian army attacked and conquered the northern kingdom, and they deported a great majority of the population. And from that time on, the northern kingdom of Israel just stopped existing. Now, after having destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyria then resettled the land with foreigners, and over time, these Gentiles intermarried with Jews, and they created this mixed race called the Samaritans. And it's interesting because the southern kingdom was later attacked and conquered by the Babylonians, but the southern kingdom had refused to intermarry with Gentiles. And you can read about that in the book of Ezra. So by about 400 BC, the Samaritans, this mixed race, erected a rival temple on the historic and ancient site of Mount Gerizim. But toward the end of the second century BC, the Jews destroyed that Samaritan temple. Now, the Samaritans refused to accept the entire Old Testament as sacred scripture. Instead, they accepted only the law of God, or what we now call the Pentateuch. Now, if you don't understand that, let me explain. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, those books that are written by Moses as inspired, and they rejected the other 34 Old Testament books. But they had an odd rendition of the first five books. Theirs has been called the Samaritan Pentateuch, and it added some features, included some dialogues between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh that are not actually found in the Bible. And so their version of the first five books was suspect because it had been corrupted over time. And so the Jews viewed the entire race of the Samaritans as subversive, cultic. Sometimes Jewish rabbis traveling from Judea, going north to Galilee, 
which they would have to walk through Samaria, would instead take a long detour. They'd go east, all the way around it, just to avoid Samaria as a whole. They, they despised it so much that they didn't even want to set foot in a territory that they utterly loathed. But most of the time, they would travel through that territory, but they refused to speak to anyone there. They, they also refused to buy food or to sleep there. Some said that simply touching a Samaritan would defile you. And so, and for their part, the, the Samaritans insisted that, that they were the true people of God and that worship should be done not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. Now, where's Mount Gerizim? Well, Moses had designated two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, as important sites. You know, when Israel entered into the Promised Land, the entire nation was to journey to those two mountains and the small valley that separated them. The mountains and the valley below formed what would be a natural amphitheater. Half of Israel was to stand on Mount Ebal and the other half on Mount Gerizim. The half that stood on Mount Ebal were supposed to recite the curses of the law, and, and the half that were on Mount Gerizim were to recite the blessings of the law. So you can imagine that historical situation because of the amphitheater effect. All Israel heard echoing through the canyons, both the blessings and the cursings of the law. And they were always to remember this, and they were to take heed not to disobey God. And so Mount Gerizim became the mountain of blessing. And there was even more on Mount Gerizim. The, the Samaritans claimed that both Jacob and Joseph lay buried on top of that mountain, and so they said it was holy ground. And because the Samaritans didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament, they had no record of David claiming Jerusalem as the holy city, nor did they have scripture of Solomon's temple being built there, nor of God's blessing on the temple as the place where the glory would dwell. Instead, the Samaritans continued to claim that Mount Gerizim was their holy place. That's but a small part of the story of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And so as we come to John chapter 4, Jesus has been traveling to Galilee. He's going north, and here he is among the Samaritans. It's the sixth hour, which means six hours from sunrise, so it's about noon, hottest part of the day. And he's hungry, so he sends the disciples into town to buy food. Already he's acting in a way that a rabbi wouldn't act. He has no difficulty traveling in Samaria, as well as buying food there. But now he would do something entirely different. He would engage in conversation with a Samaritan, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman who's immoral. No self-respecting rabbi would ever have done that. In that culture, it was absolutely shocking. The regular gifts of our partner to tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's Word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to Tell Monthly Partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth and Life Today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. Thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Oh,
Now, normally, women would come as a social unit to a well of water in the evening when it was cool. That would be a social event. So you'd have to assume that no one would come to the well, you know, at lunchtime, and Jesus would have been glad for a rest all by himself. And then came this woman all alone, an outcast. And that's the setup for this amazing encounter. The first thing we notice about this encounter is that the open heart that Jesus has toward this woman. He carries none of the Jewish animosity to the Samaritans. As far as he's concerned, this woman is lost. But then again, Nicodemus, the Jewish Pharisee, he was lost as well. And Jesus had come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, lostness didn't bother Jesus. Rather, it moved his heart to compassion. And you notice how different he is than so many of us. You know, we're easily filled with rejection of people because of their past or their place in life or their religious status or the heresy that's gripped their hearts. I mean, we tend to shy away from the outcasts, but he's different. You know, what I mean to say is that it would have been so easy for Jesus to simply avoid or to ignore this woman. She's trouble. And I must say, it's very easy to avoid trouble. I mean, keep to yourself. Keep your nose out of other people's business and mind yourself. Cover your eyes when you see the wounds and the hurts of others. Make sure you feel slightly superior to them. Remind yourselves if you had been as stupid as they are, well, maybe you'd be in trouble too. But thank God for your good sense. In this way, you're going to minimize any pain to yourself. But please remember, there's a price to pay for having a closed heart. It means you'll never see, nor will you ever participate in the great action of God. To enter into and engage in the activity of God, well, then you need an open heart. Jesus had that. Indeed, he had a heart that was open even when his body was tired. And by the way, that doesn't surprise me. I've often noticed over the years that people who are the busiest often serve the most. I've noticed how often it is that those who are weary and tired still have energy to touch someone else, and, and Jesus was exactly like that. But it's not just that he was weary from ministry and his long travel. We notice that his heart goes beyond the social barriers that have been erected because of the history and, and the culture of, of the Jews and the Samaritans, and he crosses those barriers with ease. See, this woman is shocked that Jesus addresses her. You know, rabbis in Jesus' day never addressed a woman in public, and, and of course, they wouldn't touch a Samaritan, man or woman. There's still many people like that today. They've never crossed a social barrier. They would never befriend someone of another culture, and their circle of friends remains constant over the years, and no one who doesn't belong ever gets in. I call that a closed heart. Jesus has an open heart touches lepers and spends afternoons eating with tax collectors and gluttons and people with bad morals. That was Jesus' pattern of living, a pattern of living that flows out of an, an open heart. But there's something else we see about Jesus. He seems to be able to both see the moral failures of a human heart and at the same time not close his heart to them. I mean, his heart's a heart of compassion. And Jesus knew all about this woman. He was God. And this woman had been through five failed marriages and was presently living with a man. So let's get to the point. Sin. It's sexual sin. It's called breaking the covenant of marriage. And Jesus preached against this kind of stuff. But Jesus had an open heart toward people who did not do what he warned them not to do. A lot of people don't know this, but, but you can have moral certainty and an outrage over sin while you have an open heart towards people. It's that kind of combination that makes an effective evangelist. 
And the reason I point this out is because many people assume that that evangelism is all about a formula or a program. Do it this way and you're going to win people to Christ. Look, I'm not saying that that we shouldn't memorize a gospel presentation. Indeed, I, I would say all of us should know how to lead someone to faith in Jesus. And if you don't, your local church might have resources or there are a number of other resources available to help train you to present the gospel to anyone who's interested. You know, it sometimes happens that we're in a conversation and and someone wants to know what it means to be a Christian and all of God's people are well served if they're able to answer that question at a moment's notice. This is the key. In the final analysis, all evangelism is about availability in Christ's name to people about checking our own hearts. It begins with a sensitivity to others, a sensitivity that's guided by God's Spirit. And in this sense, Jesus is modeling that for us in this passage. Jesus broke all conventional and social barriers, leaned over to her and did the unexpected. Can I have a drink, he says. And and that one small sentence, that, that willingness to communicate, changed the course of one life and of one culture. That's what happened here. But the open heart has to do more than communicate. It has to do more than to say, how are you? I mean, that alone does not make a genuine encounter with the gospel. You know, the problem that I've seen with friendship evangelism is that many people master friendship, but they never master evangelism. So notice what Jesus does next. He shows a genuine interest in her ruined and needy life. See, I notice how quickly he moved from the superficial and began to minister to her heart. Look again at verses 9 and 10. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, I'm pretty sure that the woman has no idea what Jesus meant, but it engages her. It's quite a statement. It's quite an offer. I can give you living water. Well, how can someone offer something like that? See, after some dialogue and after trying to come to terms with it, listen to Jesus answer it in verses 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, a great many people have puzzled over exactly what Jesus meant here. And the Old Testament has a great many analogies and word pictures using the image of water. Jeremiah 2, God is himself compared to a a spring of living water. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet promises that God will sprinkle clean water on his people and, and they will be clean. And in the process, he will put a new spirit in them transform them from the inside in which the people of God will love the things of God and and reject the things that are evil. You remember also that when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he told him that unless one is born again of water, he says, and the spirit, transformation of the heart, one can never see the kingdom of God. So to put the matter plainly, Jesus was telling the woman, I have the ability to give you a new birth. I have the ability to clean you up. I have the ability to grant you forgiveness before God and a new heart and the promises of eternal life. And then listen to her response. In verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Now, just like Nicodemus, who asks, how can someone be born when he is old? You know, this response of the woman points out that she really doesn't understand what's being offered her. However, one thing must not be missed. She immediately seizes on what Jesus says. In effect, she's saying, whatever this thing is, whatever this thing is that you have, I I want it. Now, she's not a convert, not yet. Jesus will need to speak to her most plainly about her sin and, and what it is that's holding her back. But also notice that this woman's sin doesn't prevent Jesus from offering her eternal life, and that is the key lesson here. My sin, your sin, anyone's sin is not what prevents you from receiving the free gift that Christ offers. But what might prevent us from receiving the free gift is our failure to acknowledge that sin. But more of that issue will come later. For now, this this woman demonstrates a thirst for what Jesus offers, and her thirst, well, it's amazing. You know, many in Israel would have rejected Christ, but this woman was in no mood to reject him at all. I mean, after all, she's an outcast, and going to the well, she goes when no one else was there. And now she's being offered something that would take away her thirst. And indeed, it's this thirst inside of her that's been motivating her sinfulness. I'm constantly amazed at how many people are just like this Samaritan woman. They're hungry for spiritual reality, or in the context of this passage, they're thirsty for it, and they know they don't have it. And Jesus comes to us when we're thirsty, and he says, would you like living water? And all we need to do is to respond and to say to him, yes, I do. And he will lead us to the place where living water is to be found. What an amazing thing. Sin will not keep us from the gift that Christ has to offer. John, I find it interesting that there's really two types of people that don't come to Christ. Those that are too guilty, they feel overwhelmed with their sin, and those that just don't understand that they're sinful at all. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I just, that's wonderful insight. I, you know, I think that, you know, when Jesus gave the story of the publican and the Pharisee, you know, the Pharisee is thanking God because he is not like the publican who's praying next to him and the publican is just pounding his, his breast and, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, not knowing whether or not God would. And that really does talk about that kind of a thing. Now, now here this woman at the well seems so open because her thirst is amazing and in the end, she'll deal with her own sin question as well. So, You know, may God give us both of those things, a recognition of our sin and also a willingness to understand God forgives. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, 
Consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.